please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue on in this wonderful epistle by Paul. If you'd like, uh, also the text is in uh, uh, your bulletin. This is the Word of God, and it's a double-edged sword. It's able to judge our thoughts and intentions and lay them bare. So let us put our thoughts and intentions, uh, thoughts and mind to uh, God's Word and uh, hear what it would have to say to us. Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we also were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for these eternal words of Yours. And they are a double-edged sword in how they teach us, how they cut off false notions and untruths and half-truths to reveal the complete will of God and how You accomplish Your redemption. Father, help us to understand these truths deep in our heart. And Lord, may they be transferred into our affections so that we might love you, God, more and more. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we began looking at this marvelous first sentence in the book of Ephesians. And as I shared last week, this is one of the key texts in proving the Trinity. In fact, this week while I was counseling, I had... Uh, issue about the Trinity. And it's good to know where these doctrines are out to point to people that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are the three in one. Three unique persons, but all God. Now, um, in that, one of the places I pointed to to display the Trinity was that of uh, in the Great Commission. Where Jesus asked us that we be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. One singular name, three distinct people. And we saw that this Trinity, each of the persons of the Trinity, had different operations. And last week we looked at the first person of that, which was the Father. And his primary emphasis was in love, he chose some to be redeemed. And we saw how last week that that 
choosing did not happen just as a plan B or after Christ came. No, it happened from all eternity, before the foundation of the world. It was part of God's eternal plan to choose people to become His children. In other words, to adopt them, to make them His. And what a special thing that, that is, adoption. Now, this adoption, he goes on to tell us, could only happen through one person, and that is through Christ. It is in Jesus that we get this ultimate spiritual blessing. It is in Him that God could not give us anything more. It is completely in Christ that He freely chose us, that we would be His elect, His children. <clears throat> now, something I wanted to point out is God's ch- choosing of those who would be His children is completely free. And what I mean by that is God is not coerced. He's not manipulated. uh, He's not paid uh, anything that could move His will to so uh, implore Him to choose someone. It is all God's free doing. And one of the things I shared with you last week is that His freeness shows that even some people who are a part of God's community, who have been a part of the church or been a part of the Jewish nation, or even some of those who are the most distant of Him. And Scripture gives us a couple clear examples to display God's freeness of choice. Uh, Two of those I pointed out last week were the Pharisees and Judas. Here were these two groups of people, well, Judas being one and Pharisees being a group, that were around the Savior, that knew the Savior, that heard the Savior, but yet their hearts were completely distant from the Savior. Though they read their Bibles, though they were circumcised, though they did the acts and followed along with the crowd that were part of God's people, yet their hearts were distant. They never were part of God's community. There was no inward work of the Holy Spirit. They did exactly what their nature would have them do. And so obviously from Scripture we know that they betrayed the Son of God by remaining sons of Adam and following the devil's enticement. You see, what the doctrine of election does is it sort of forces everybody to go somewhere we don't really want to go. And you know where that forces us to go? It forces us to ask the question, am I really God's or am I not God's? Now, that's a question no one really sort of wants to deal with sometimes. Because what that means is I have to inspect myself. I have to do an evaluation of do I, am I truly part of God's community? And what the doctrine of election does is it sort of exposes any false assurances that you and I may have or that one may not have. You see, it forces us to look at God's doctrines to really say, okay, what is true? What makes a person a child of God? What makes sure that we are uh, His? In America, we're often told that God is love, right? And God is love. We know that from Scripture. And He does love us. That is true. However, often here in America, and I see this quite often on the base, we falsely assume that if God is love, And he loves his creation all the time. He would never hold anyone accountable to to who we are 
to who we are to Him. In other words, it's sort of like another chaplain would say, or has often said to me, when someone screws up, we say in the South, we say, oh, bless his heart. It's that idea that it's okay. It's not that bad. God loves you. It's, it's all good all of the time. But when you look at this doctrine of election, you cannot presume on God's love. It forces you and I to really ask the question, well, am I in God's love? Am I His child? Am I a part of Him? You see, we, when we know that God chooses in love, He redeems people out of this death and decay, out of sin and sorrow, out of disease and sickness, we realize it's not of us. And so it makes us... As children of God, examine what are we holding on to? What are we trusting in to say our salvation is sure? You see, it's not whether how much Scripture we might know or how well we know the Word of God or how regular our attendance is to Sunday school or to church. It's not whether we've been baptized, as some have said in my office. Well, chaplain, I've been baptized. It's not that. It's not whether we're just a member of a church. No, the doctrine of election challenges us to make sure we are of God's household and to not take His grace for granted. Paul says at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith. Yes, test yourselves. So how do we know if we're God's elect? Well, we believe, we know it, we know we're God's elect if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, and we rest in Him alone. We don't trust in anything else. We don't trust in our works, our deeds, or our family, or our lineage, or how good we are. No, we trust in Christ. You know, uh, recently I had an email from a person I've been counseling, and he said this to me in his email. He was a little concerned about... uh, whether he was not God's child. And he said, the reason why I'm concerned about that is I see my sin so much. Now, I haven't written back to him, but the, the question isn't whether or not you've seen, how much sin you've seen in your life. The question is, who are you trusting in to cover that sin? I'm convinced that as you and I grow more and more closer to God, and we follow more and more God's ways as his children, we see more of our sin. That's a sure sign of maturity if one relies on Christ. Now, the opposite could be true as well. It could be that, yes, they're not a believer, and yes, they're not resting in Christ. But it all comes back to who we trust in. Because when we trust in Christ, as we know from Scripture, something amazing happens. A new nature comes within us. And this is sort of what Paul's getting at. We see this new nature in him as he describes the work of the Godhead. You see, the more it's almost like as you read down through verses 3 through 14, you sort of see like a snowball going down a mountain. Now, my kids love cartoons, and we've all seen the cartoon where, you know, whether it's Bugs Bunny or whether it's uh, Ice Age or whatever it might be, the little guy pushes the snowball down the hill, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you sort of see this with Paul as he describes what God has done in saving us. 
He uses words like lavished and richly and given us this inheritance and praise be to his name and his wisdom and insight. It's like Paul cannot help but give utterance of how good God has been. You see, when we, one of the true tests of knowing if we're part of God's community is how has your affections changed? Because when we know we're part of God's community, when we are part of his elect, something in us is radically different. So as Paul said, we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We get excited about Sunday morning. Whoa. Did that scare something? Should that not be true? We should be excited about Sunday morning. That's where we get to be with God's family and we get to hear God's word preached and we sing hymns. It brings joy to our heart. That is something true of a person new in Christ. They make worship a priority. When they have downtime, they're not always surfing the Internet. No, they're wanting to know about God and who he is. They want to read his word and be transformed. You see, and I think I said this last week, if you see a person who says they believe in God and they believe in Christ, but they're not a part of regular worship, there's a problem there. There's a disconnect. That is not a true sign of election. A true sign of election is, yes, I want to be a part of a community of God. And even when I'm on vacation or wherever it might be, when Sunday morning rolls around, worship is a priority of mine because that's one of the rules of my dad. My dad loves me and he wants me to sanctify this day called the Sabbath to worship on him. Those are just some of the truths that happen when a person is a child of God. They become transformed. And as Paul said here in Ephesians, we grow in holiness, in righteousness, in a desire to please him. So what role does Christ play in this uh, thing called adoption? Well, three R's I have listed for you in your outline. Redemption, revelation, and riches. And so let's look at the first as Paul finishes his focus on the father and moves to the son, he, he sort of changes location. With the father, he talks about the things in eternity. But now he sort of focuses on the things done by the son on earth. And he tells us that in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Now, throughout this whole section, Paul uses some big, weighty theological terms. And I'm sure many of you know what redemption means. But to be clear, let's just say, let's answer the question, what does what is redemption defined as? If you were to look it up in a dictionary, it would use uh, these terms. Redemption is to recover ownership by paying a specific sum, to pay off, as in a promissory note, to turn in coupons, for example, and receiving something in exchange, to fulfill a pledge, or to convert stocks into cash. It's basically to set free by a payment, by a ransom, by a rescue. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul explains this redemption. He says, you have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. This idea of redemption has been a part of Scripture. And where it really came Uh, in, sort of where the scaffolding was first laid, was in the Exodus. 
we hear these words of redemption of where God redeems. He pulls his people out of the slavery of Egypt. He redeems them. And he pulls them out. In scripture, this whole idea of redemption is communicated as completely a work of God. I love this verse in Isaiah. It says this in chapter 43. But now thus saith the Lord who created thee, O Jacob, that he formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name. Thou art mine. You see, God does this work of redemption, and it's done through Christ. In the book of Matthew, uh, we're told this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom of many. Jesus is the payment to redeem mankind. He's the price God paid as we described in our confession, as the pastors there who wrote the Belgic Confession conveyed, that this was the great price that God played by giving His Son to redeem you and I. He, Jesus, is our surety. And a surety is one who has become legally liable for debt for default or failure in duty of another. And that is completely what Jesus did. He becomes becomes liable for all of our inadequacies, all our rebellion, all our breaking of God's laws. He becomes liable for that, and he takes that all on him. And this redemption, we're told by Paul, is done through the blood of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, he writes, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained for us eternal redemption. You see, Christ is the source of our redemption. He is the source of our life. And this redemption does a number of things for us. Let me just share with you a couple of things that his redemption now does for us once we're in Christ. First thing it does, it it frees us from the bondage of the law. In Galatians 4, Paul writes, He redeems them them that were under the law, that they might be received adoption as sons. He redeems us from the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of law, being made a curse for for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He redeems us from the power of sin. Being then made free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. He frees us from the power of the grave. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He shall receive me. He redeems us from all our troubles. Psalm 25 says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles and out of all iniquity, Titus tells us, who gave himself to us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify uh, Unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. This redemption of God is so encompassing. And honestly, I've sort of just scratched the surface to not just go down through the whole list of how we could look at what his redemption has accomplished. And it's done through this great swap. Now, we're going to talk more about this at the Lord's Supper. But it's what, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade to help College students understand this. We called it the great swap. Now, when you're a kid, you swap things, didn't you? I had a brother, and we swapped toys, right? I'll give you this if you give me that, right? I think my kids do that every once in a while. Maybe your kids do that, right? And, and, you know, you know how it usually works. You want to get something a little bit better than what they got, right? That's a good swap. 
Well, consider what swap we got with Christ. He said to us, you know what? I'll take all your sin. I'll take all your disease that's been the effect of all your sin. I'll take your rebellion. I'll take your abandonment. I'll take your distance. I'll even make you a son. I'll make you a part of my family. In fact, I'll go intercede with you to the Father. I'll give you all those things. You just have to receive me. And all and those whose hearts have been changed realize how good a deal that is. And the more we see how good a deal it is, the quicker we are to uh, want to follow this person who has given us such a good deal. You know, like it says, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. It's seeing how good that swap is, how much He gives us, that we go, man, this is better than anything I ever thought of. I'm going to be your friend now. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to listen to you. You are going to be my God. You see, throughout the history of the Old Testament, God was sort of building up to this work of redemption in Christ. He sort of, like I said earlier, lays this scaffolding. On base right now, they're building all kinds of new homes. Uh, We have homes on base that are probably about 60 years old. They've been around for a while. And you think about all the military families that have been in those homes. They they have their share of wear and tear. Uh, We're in one of them. But they're building all these new homes. And before each home goes up, they lay scaffolding. They put the foundation down. They put the pipes. Then they lay the frame. And that's sort of what we see in the Old Testament is we hear about God's redemptive process. We see it with Adam and Eve, that God, when they realize that they're naked, what does God do? He covers them with loincloths. Remember that? And then after that, we we see how God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I'm going to redeem all the nations through you. All the nations will be blessed because of you. And then we see Moses and the uh, the covenant which is given to him, that, that the nation of Israel would be what? A holy priesthood. What does a priesthood do? It intercedes. It helps out those who can't help themselves out with God. And all the scaffolding is laid until we get to Christ, until we see the God-man who is the perfect picture of redemption the perfect embodiment of both being completely God and completely man. And this is the revelation that Paul is talking about because now he's saying the fullness of time has come with Christ. All the things that have been building up, now they're here. And the completeness of this redemptive process is here in Christ. And then he goes on to our third R, which is this, the riches that we have in Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, we have this inheritance. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, when we think about this great swap, um, I was thinking about this, and if we were to consider having a focus group, and we knew how to bad of condition we were in, what would we want from God to sort of rescue us from? And so we would start listing down those things 
Of that we could be forgiven. That we'd be given a new nature. That we wouldn't no longer be an enemy of God. Now we could have communion and fellowship. Perhaps maybe now God could be, instead of a God of wrath at us, He could be our Father. Perhaps He could be all these things. And perhaps He could give us a nature now that we wouldn't want to just live for ourselves. No, we would want to please Him. We would list all these things down. And even after listing them, we would only start scratching the surface of how good, how rich this inheritance would be of what we have in Christ. You see, when we think about what God has done in Christ, we it's kind of ironic, uh, but I think a better word is providential, that today would be Valentine's Day and we're talking about the greatest gift God could give in love. I mean, Jesus is God's greatest valentine to us. There is no greater love he could give than in Jesus. And when we consider all that he's given to us, it just woos our heart. It's like a lover being appealed to by all the woos of of, of her beloved. You cannot help but respond. And that's what God does for us in Christ. So, Besides meditating on these eternal truths, what would Paul want the Ephesians and us to take home as a result of understanding this eternal mystery of God's glorious riches in Christ? Well, how necessary it is, I think, would be first. He would not want us to miss the fact that we have to be in Christ to have all these things. Notice that phrase, in Christ, how many times that's been said in these first uh, 11 verses. Uh, or 3 through 14, I think it's used nine times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You know, in military, we have this thing of repetition is the master of all teaching. We figure if you hear it so many times, it's bound to sink in through that old hard head. Well, I think Paul's trying to communicate something here to us. All this can be ours through one caveat, in Christ And it is so important that we understand who Christ is. That's why I have three things that that I think we need to know here. And that is correct knowledge, correct faith, which leads to a sure salvation. We must believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Many people say they believe in Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. Mankind... If you look over our history, since the time of Christ till now, there's two major errors that people have fallen into. One error is that Jesus is not fully man. He didn't have fully flesh like you and I do. And the other error is that Jesus is not fully God. Both of these things are equally problematic. You see, Jesus had to be fully man. If he doesn't have flesh and blood, if he doesn't have an emotion and a will just like you and I do, if he is not tempted in every way like you and I are, how can he pay our debt? He cannot. Jesus must be fully man. And the scriptures clearly teach that. He, the scriptures tell us he was tired, he was hungry, he was weary, he bled, and he died. Those are all actions only human beings uh, can experience because he had emotion in this. He cared for people. The other error, though, is that Jesus is not fully God. And this is more what we're dealing with in our day and age, aren't we? 
To say that Jesus is not fully God is to strike at the very vitals of our salvation and to attack God's word. Scripture is overly and abundantly clear that Jesus is God. Just very quickly, just a few proofs. John says in his prologue, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Or the number of I am statements that Jesus says about himself, identifying himself with the Father. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And it was those statements, if you remember the context, what did the Jews do as a result? They picked up stones. They knew Jesus wasn't just saying he was a good teacher. No, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus claimed to be God. After the storm on the lake, notice the disciples worshipped him. And if Jesus was not fully God, then he is committing idolatry. And then lastly, Thomas's testimony, my Lord and my God. For salvation to occur, we must have correct knowledge of God, and without it, we hope in a mirage, something that looks like an oasis, but in fact is nothing. There's no guarantee, no uh, health, nothing that can really uh, meet the need which we need to have. It is a mirage. Paul, I believe, teaches this again to the Ephesians because if you remember correctly, one of the things I told you about, one of the huge problems the Ephesians had is bad doctrine. They had bad teaching. And it can be very easy for us to gloss over this or want to talk about the Jesus that we feel and that we love. Please hear me. That is very important. But if we do not know him for who he really is, we have missed what he is. We have missed his love completely because it's when we know that he is the perfect mediator in man and in God, both completely, both natures in one being. That's when we see how amazing his love is. And that's what leads to a sure salvation. It's when you and I have our faith in the God man, in the mediator, in Jesus Christ. We see how abundant these riches are. We see God's wisdom and insight. We see how perfect the plan was. There's nothing that we can say from the back row and say, well, you could have done, added this, or you could have tweaked this issue. No, we look at it and we marvel at it. We're like Paul and we say, man, how good is this? We cannot help but praise God. So how do you know God this morning? And how do you think about Jesus? If uh, you were challenged in some of the things I said today, I would encourage you to search the Scriptures. This is your authority, not me. God's word is. And that is where our testimony is found, our trust is found, in what God has placed in those scriptures. And that is what we are bound by. And if those are, things are true, what I have said about Jesus today, then I would encourage you to put your, your head, heart, and mind around them and watch God grow your affections. Because what happens is then, as we, as we go through life, we sort of see these ups and downs, Pits and peaks. But what's cool is, is God is growing us into maturity. He loves us too much to allow us to be complacent or to grow into immaturity. That is our loving Father. And that's what he wants to produce in each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for what Christ has done. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this world to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, as we think about those things, may it not just be rote facts, 
May it not just be uh, details or statistics, but treasured truths which our hymn writers sing about, the blessedness of it. Lord, may that be true of us. I struggle with that as much as the next person. But Lord, I would ask and pray that you would create affections in us to appreciate these eternal truths and to not compromise them, Lord. I'm sure many here in this community have friends, yea, even family, who have compromised these truths. Help us to know how to speak to them in love, to point them to to the true Jesus so that they might have a sure salvation. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.